You're listening to the Sprint Hard Iterate Fast podcast, where we look inside the most innovative companies creating exciting new jobs. I'm your host, Reggie James, and I've worked with many startups, three I co-founded, two that scaled to employ hundreds of people. On the Sprint Hard Iterate Fast podcast, we're getting candid stories and trusted career advice from CEOs, CTOs, and product leaders who are building amazing teams right now. Want to learn how to stand out and be noticed by some of the top tech companies worldwide? Hang with me as I uncover the secrets of their success. Thanks for tuning in to the Sprint Hard Iterate Fast podcast. Today, I want to welcome our guest, Jeremy Goldschmidt, to the show. A career consultant turned startup founder, Jeremy, welcome to the Sprint Hard Iterate Fast podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Glad to glad to have you on today. You're the CEO and founder of Rent Better. Yes? Correct. Can you tell us what is Rent Better? Sure. Uh, Rent Better is a tech platform for landlords or those who own investment or rental properties who want to manage it themselves without using an agent. So traditionally in the Australian market, you've got about 2 million landlords who are claiming rental income on their tax returns. And so they've got an investment property and they've gone the traditional route of going to a real estate agent or a property manager to manage that property. Often people find it costly or that they don't actually have control over their investment or or transparency over what's going on. So there's been a movement over the last... Uh, well, certainly last few years we've seen it grow, but, but, but people have always self-managed. Uh, and so we offer a platform that gives you the tools and the uh, technology to do that yourself in a more efficient way, which obviously helps save money and gives you control over your property. Really interesting. So a little bit of my own background, I, I'm obviously not native to Australia, but when I came here, I did notice that many of the rental properties did have a property manager component to it. Just seemed like the way that things happen. Whereas my background in the States, uh, normally you had the landlord. So I, I wonder with Rent Better, are you, do you have to con- convince people to, to move away from the property management model? Or like, w- w- how do you get people to, to take up yeah, your product? It's, it's a great question. And I think over time, if you look at um, what's been happening in this market, traditionally, you've had sort of 75 to 80% of those 2 million landlords that I mentioned are using a traditional property manager. So that's just been the way it was. And people would, you know, by word of mouth or family or friends, uh, go to somebody that they knew who they'd been referred to, and they'd use that property manager. What we've seen over time is generally a level of dissatisfaction either with the service or with the actual uh, amount of fees that they're paying and therefore the sort of value for money that they're getting Mm. out of that service and people shifting towards doing it themselves. And so we typically see it's a savings of about 2,000, sometimes more now given, given the current sort of inflation and market that we're in. People can save a fair bit. If you look at interest rates rising, people are obviously looking for ways to save money. So we, we've always sort of looked at the market as what we call the early adopters are the ones that, if you like, helped us build up the company in the early days. And they were already looking for this or they were, might have already been doing it themselves and thought, oh, platform would make that so much easier. So they come to us. What we've started to see over the last probably two years is what we call the kind of frustrated switches. And those are people who may currently be with an agent or have had an experience that suggested that they might like to do it themselves or go through a different model who are starting to look at what we do and say, hey, I'm going to jump on board with that. Mm. 
And then, of course, you sort of have the next, if you like, the next horizon outside of that is those people who, you know, maybe have not really considered it in their solution set, but start to see, oh, hang on a second, I could substitute this totally and do it this way. Um, So we definitely see that the market is moving in that direction and that there's a trend towards self-management. I think, you know, platforms and portals like an Airbnb or an Uber where people are used to doing things on their own now through whatever dashboard or online app or or portal that they're given certainly helps with that trend. Hmm. I think consumers are definitely shifting in that direction. Really interesting. So maybe you could talk a little bit more. I understand that you said consumers are, are, are shifting and their interest is shifting. But who is rent better disrupting? Like where does where does the platform become disruptive in the market? So yeah, interestingly, when we you know when I first started this business and as a management consultant, no matter which way I try, I can't get away from a, a good old PowerPoint pack. So I had I had like my business plan written out, and I recall drawing out a chart which had sort of a map of the market and was explaining in, you know, state by state, age categories, who owns investment properties, what is the percentage that you attribute to different age groups. And there's this great chart which just had a line through anyone over 55 that the assumption was that those are people who may not be that interested in new technology and going to stay the course with the traditional property manager and the traditional route to market. And so the assumption was that it was going to be the younger set who were coming through who were more likely to take on a technology tool or service in order to manage their property than the older set. And honestly, from day one, I was proven wrong. And it was in fact the reverse, Mm. which has been very good for us, which is what you find is number one, as I'm sure all listeners and you and I know quite well, saving up a deposit to buy an investment property is not the sort of thing that happens overnight. It takes a fair amount of time and commitment to actually save enough to buy that property. So by virtue of the people in this country who tend to own investment properties tend to be a bit older. Mm. So just by you know the, the numbers in the market, you find that actually it is the sort of 40, 45 plus segment in Australia that own properties. And what we found was in the early days, it was the sort of early retirees or those who had a bit more time on their hands who were looking to do uh, self-management and who were looking towards a platform like us. And what we've actually found in in the years since that is by making a platform that gives a positive user experience, not just to landlords, but also to tenants and makes it more efficient and transparent, that in actual fact, it is not just about finding the age group or by finding the specific segment. You know, there's a a little psychology element to sort of do-it-yourselfers, right? Mm. Who are people who are, you know, maybe they want to be in control. They want to do all these things that you say, ah, that's for them, not for me. But what we've actually found is, in the same way as some of the other sort of great sort of disruptors over time, uh, you find that when the experience is more positive, when there's a cash savings, when it's actually better for everybody, then it starts to sort of build that momentum towards this is just the standard way that we want to do it because it's easier and better. And, you know, that's certainly our aspiration. And I feel like we've made really huge strides towards that over the last couple of years as we really see uh, you know, a very loyal and growing customer base who then tell us they've told all their family and friends. And then you get people jumping on who say, you know, my sister-in-law, my brother, whoever it is was using Rent Better, and now I'm here too. Um, and so that's really sort of, I guess, validating in, in what we do. Nice. Very, very fascinating stuff. Uh, so many things to, to dive in and talk about, but I want to keep us moving. Um, you did kind of mention your your background as a management consultant, and, and I do want to get into your background a little bit more. But before we do, um, I, I want to I understand 
how did you get the idea for Rent Better? Like you, your background, I mean, from what I can tell, is not necessarily in the property space. You, you, you've been a career consultant. You've done lots of work. Like, how did you end up getting the idea for Rent Better? Yeah, so there, there were two things, uh, and I guess ultimately, Rent Better is is sort of the intersection of those two things that happened in a short space of time that that turned it into a reality. Um, and the first was. I would have been sort of my mid-20s when I bought my first investment property. I was uh, a management consultant at the time. I was working long hours. I travelled. I, I just had a range of commitments that were largely focused on work. And yet when I bought that first property, which again, I'd sort of saved and slaved away to get to, I was then introduced to the property manager who showed me the management agreement and went to hand me the keys. And it wasn't this, you know, this shouldn't be seen as, as a, a sort of having a go at the individual property manager, but I was meeting someone that was going to look after, you know, my retirement and my nest egg and this thing that was so valuable and important to me. And I just got such an sort of uneasy feeling that I didn't trust this person, mm. that the things that they were suggesting, even when I looked at the rent in the market and what they were currently getting, when I looked at the agreement that I had with them, just a lot of things didn't make sense. And I, and I basically ended up saying to them, look, I'll, I'll figure this out. There's no way I'm doing that. Um, tore up the management agreement and went off and ended up just figuring out how to manage it myself. And there was you know, some research and some learning and some, a, a bunch of things to, to get myself to a position where I was confident in it. And I found that, that over time, uh, whether it was family or friends or friends of friends or cousins of friends, people were coming to me and saying, hey, you manage your own property. I, I want to do it or I'm doing this that's similar. How do you do X or how do you do Y? And I found myself writing sort of little guides or emails or cheat sheets and sending them out to people and was discovering that they were actually being sent further and further afield and that people were genuinely asking questions and that there was sort of no central place for people to go either to access the tools that they needed or to get guidance on things or to actually manage it, right? There is some element of a system and a tool that would help you do that. Um, so that was sort of the first trigger, if you like, was that there's clearly demand for this. If people just had a place where they could go to do this, more people would do it. Mm. The, the second catalyst was at the time I worked, I mentioned that I was a, a strategy consultant and I worked at one of the banks um, in strategy for wealth, for the wealth division. And I found always um, around that sector that there were just these tremendous similarities between the way wealth and financial advice worked and property. Yet financial advice and wealth always had these gigantic tech platforms that sat behind them that offered sort of scale efficiencies, that offered guidance and, and compliance so that there was, if you like, a control between the front line who were doing things and the back office and how that was being managed. And whenever I looked at property and you know, self-managing, I couldn't find my own platform. And when I even looked at what some agents and agencies were doing, in, in actual fact, I discovered that a lot of them at the time were running sort of server-based solutions on a computer in the office. And it was all sort of kind of, you know, like tech in the 80s. And you could see that there's a very large number of agents out there in, in the real world who are doing things day to day, but they really didn't have the tools and the technology to help make them more efficient and deliver that sort of trusted, valued service that people want. And so you know, sort of day to day, I spent my time looking at this thing from an industry and how does it operate. And then you know, like, if you like on the side, I spent my time, you know, managing my own investment property and hearing that there was great demand for it. Um, and that sort of kicked me off to the first little test, if you will. I, I decided to just do a sample um, and I uh, sort of put out, uh, you know, 
when people talk about MVPs and the first sample, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm proud or embarrassed to say that our first MVP that went to market was not very good, but it was the very first iteration that for a very low cost got to test whether somebody would pay for something like this. Um, and, and in a sense, I feel a bit lucky because on day one we hit, uh, people were interested, people paid, and it sort of you know, got a life of its own and created its own momentum where it was extremely rewarding coming from, I loved the work that I did, I really enjoyed my career. Uh, you know, there's a huge amount of benefits in working for banks and corporates and all the things that you learn there. But suddenly you go from a place where you're, um, you know, in a cog in a wheel, so to speak, mm. to delivering value and discovering that there is somebody out there who's willing to pay for that product or that value that you can deliver. It's sort of addictive in a way, yeah. right? You, you sort of have the first hit of it and then you're you're really into it because you know that there's more people out there that will derive value from yeah. it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's it's interesting to see how you, you've kind of ended up in the places you've ended up because of... Of, of you know something that was more interesting or more passionate to you on, on the side and something you were, you were developing some some skill and ability in that's super fascinating before we talk a little bit more about your background I'm, I'm curious to know you know you said you you are a strategy consultant you know I've been a consultant I work with lots of consultants and, I, and I've seen lots of strategies and, and they're they're really big and pretty and they they paint a great picture of what we're going to create and you know how the market's going to respond but then when the rubber hits the road it's often a different story. So I, 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 love to, I love to talk about the MVP you created, but I know you've been doing this for, for a few years now, I think five years now. I love to understand what role does that experimentation, that kind of approach to, to learning as you, you, you put your strategy into practice, like what, what role does that play in your product development? In a sense, it's everything we do, right? I think there's a, there's a level in the way that we operate, which is that there's sort of a, a guiding light and we're aiming to do certain things and we have a, a bunch of sort of big rocks or big projects that we're always trying to move. But within it, and this is probably the part that I most enjoy about what we've done since day one, is there's always a bunch of little one percenters or aha moments within what you're doing that, yes, the strategy is the big picture in the direction you're heading, but if you don't iterate quickly within a small sort of spectrum of work or within a very targeted focused effort, then you tend to sort of lose out on, I think, a lot of those insights and benefits that you can get along the way. And, you know, there's there's so many little things that I can think of over time, but even just the ability for a user to click a button at a certain point where you might have had that over here or it was in step three, but actually observing and learning from the pattern of behavior that that button was better placed over here. And, and that sounds a bit like a silly example and almost overly academic because it's like, well, how could you test that this was the right place for the button? But, but the realization that actually when we tried it over here versus here, the result was so much greater. And we, you know, in one particular example that I'm thinking of, we found that by keeping users within that screen to do X, Y, and Z, the volume of that action just was tremendously higher than it was previously. And I think those little sort of insights and aha moments, they really, I guess they, they keep the team going and they keep the general motivation because you've got almost like a little reward on a regular basis mm -hmm. from what it is that you're delivering and you can see those improvements. Yeah, And I, I feel like the other side of that is true too. And it's nicer now that we've got a much larger user base, although maybe the risks are a little bit higher sometimes when things don't go that well you immediately will hear from people mm. why it doesn't work or what's wrong with it. But I think you 
you very much get to feel that friction, whether it's from support tickets going up or questions and the volume of activity being impacted by something not quite being right. And so um, I guess direct answer to your question is we, we apply that concept on a daily basis in the way we approach things. And maybe it's, a, it's sort of a, a pendulum that swings. Sometimes we're too quick to put stuff out and you know that that might have been pushing it a bit far. And sometimes you think, oh, we've really overcooked this and we should have put it out and got users to tell us what they thought of it. And, and so I, I think we sort of have to be able to shift and adapt with the size and scale of each one of those, um, if you like, deliverables yep. or outputs so that we, we deploy and we get it into customers' hands quickly. Can you tell us about one of those failures or one of those times where you've learned? Like, can you give us, uh, uh, us an example of uh, something that's that's gone wrong? Like, I mean, you've been on a, a wild journey now for five years building something from nothing. Like, what, what is... What does failure look like in 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 the eyes of a a startup leader who's building a really yeah. innovative company? Well, look, I think I think failure is is already a hard label to put on things because I feel like from each one of those things that didn't go right, we got so much more and we learned so much more that we were able to apply in the right way, and so therefore it was kind of a really cheap learning experience, mm. I'd say. But the, the best one that I can think of is really. Um, and again, I, I sort of share this cautiously, but the, the first iteration of the product, I mean, literally we just had one form and it very rarely worked. Mm. And I had the ability to identify when a customer had signed up and could see them going through the motions, but I knew they couldn't get to the end of the flow because yeah. it didn't work. Yeah. And there was just a ton of sort of hand-to-hand combat, yeah. which was hopping on the phone with people and literally doing that user testing in real time where it gave me personally at the time, because there wasn't a team, it was literally the, yep. the ability to understand what it was people were trying to do and what they wanted and translate that then into a form and a funnel that did actually work yep. so that we could take the benefit of, you know, a couple of a hundred people's input and translate that into the product. So that's, that's kind of been, um, if you like, I've got this sort of old, I think it's an Apple iPhone 4, which is, now a bit smashed and broken up, but still sits in a very special place for me, which was the very early days of the business. That was kind of the number one tool, which was to be able to hop on the phone and chat to people yeah. and learn what exactly, you know, we'd obviously attracted them and we had a good way to pull them in. But until we truly knew and could sort of create, if you like, the upper and lower limit of what it was that we're trying to do and then sort of build out the product that way, um, I, I don't think we could say at the time we really understood what people wanted mm. until we could build it in and get it going. And now, you know, we're in a place where that funnel sort of, it works and drives people through it. Yep. And we know that there's obviously still improvements and there always will be, but we still try and take that sort of similar approach to it. Fascinating. A bit of that, that lean startup, a bit of that um, build the plane while it's flying approach uh, sounds like. A, a little bit. These these days were a little bit less like yeah, that, but yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely, really fascinating. So I want to talk about you a little bit. A lot of our listeners would have uh, an interest in tech. Um, they might be in tech and they're, they're looking to progress. And and some of those people as well are. They want to find themselves in 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 your seat. Like they they want to be a founder of a company. Um, can you tell us how did you end up where you are now? Like what what was your what was your career journey like? 
So look, career-wise, I guess I had um, a few different experiences as a management consultant. I was, I guess, lucky in a sense that I got to work in different countries. I got to work across most continents. So as a sort of young 20-something, it was terrific to be able to travel and I guess live beyond my means in a sense because I certainly couldn't afford to fly near the front of a plane and I certainly couldn't afford hotels around the world. But I, I, you know, I felt very lucky and that career was incredibly rewarding and I, I loved every minute of it. I guess as I got to a stage of life where my wife and I had a child, it sort of didn't make sense to be traveling as much. And so I, I ended up taking a, 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 or moving to a bank locally. And so that to me, again, was a totally different learning experience because uh, and, and again, I'm sure many of your audience have had some sort of similar experience where you sort of go from professional services and you're, maybe this isn't the best description, but you're kind of ADD by design mm. where you're doing like an eight-week project and you absolutely have tunnel vision and crazy amounts of focus and then you've got to forget it and move on to the next yeah. one. And so, so there was that for a lot of years that suited me and I loved it, but obviously having, having a child made less sense. And now you're, you're translating that into sort of longer-term goals over a longer horizon, which was, for me, a really big realisation in transitioning into sort of more formal corporate was you look at projects over a longer time horizon and they have uh, impact that clearly, you know, matters to you for a more significant amount of time too. So the relationships and the stakeholders and the way that you deliver and do things is sort of a slightly different style than, than I'd found in consulting. And again, I, I absolutely love my, my time and I love that style of work. Um, but I think, you know, I'd always had from the early days, uh, if you like, a, an interest in doing something a bit more entrepreneurial. And for myself, I found actually, uh, strangely enough, because, you know, in some ways you could say that having children and a family would drive you further towards stability yep. and a paycheck. Yep. But in my case, it sort of drove me the other way, which was some sort of intent to set a positive example for, for my children mm. that they could go and do something and, and sort of chase a dream in a way. Um, and so for me, I am, am not a huge risk taker. Mm. So I mentioned before that it was all about doing little proof of concept experiments and proving out that people wanted this thing and cool, now let's move it to the next thing and see can we do it a bit bigger and a bit better. So for me, it was never one giant leap off a cliff and hope that I was going to fly it was a really somewhat planned and premeditated sequence of steps with some milestones along the way to prove to myself that it could work and I could do it. And then when the time came, I took the giant mm. leap. I love that. That's a really practical, pragmatic approach to, to entrepreneurship and innovation and, and, and growth in your career. I, I love the having gone through as a consultant, the experiences that you had, um, you know, often working in the big machine to to then taking the the small steps to taking the big leap. I think that's really uh, amazing. I want to chase that thread. <clears throat> you, you you mentioned your journey of of entrepreneurship and 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 tech startup. Like you're setting an example for your your children. I, I, I wonder if you could go back and tell your younger self one thing. You know what what would you what would you tell yourself now? You know, having the experiences that you have today, what would you tell yourself? It's a really hard question because I feel like in in the sort of early 20s, you have this crazy amount of ambition and urgency. And uh, I certainly had that and was, you know, from day one when I started in my corporate career, was ready to be CEO of a multinational. But, you know, you sort of have a trade-off with a bit of wisdom and experience. And I think there's there's 
almost the patience to get to that place where you have the right skill set and the right tool set to know that you can apply it, but not losing the urgency and ambition to go and do it. And I've always found that um, my sort of early young years, and I say youth, but it really was my early 20s, that, that level of urgency and ambition, I don't think ever left but I think that I didn't necessarily know how to apply it properly. Mm. So for me, that time in consulting, that time in corporate was really valuable because you either see how some projects or some corporates or some leaders didn't necessarily operate the way you expected or wanted. And so you yourself are learning. Um, and just, I guess, th- there, is some, you know, there is some wisdom in, in having had that experience that you pick up along the way. And I think that the, the terrific expression that you always hear is that, um, uh, what is it, youth, uh, is it youth, youth is wasted on the young oh, or yeah, something along yeah, those lines? Yes, yes. And there's kind of this sense of that, but you need to keep the positives and that urgency and ambition and take it through with you. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Really good. I, w- I want to tr- transition and, and talk a little bit about the business that you're building from the perspective of of the culture and, the, and and what it's like to to work at Rent Better. Um, I'm thinking, you know, you guys, I believe, raised some some funds last year to to obviously build out the product and I imagine to grow your team a bit. Uh, I wonder how do you maintain a, a positive and productive culture when you're growing a business? I think I think that's the sort of million dollar question, isn't it? I think like f- from our perspective, we we all um, have been very lucky in that the team that we've got have actually been here for some time, mm. and we all actually get along quite well and have seen the business grow and I hope that we'll continue to see the business grow together. And so I think that's always been something that's been been really important is that the team dynamic's been quite strong. But, but you know, there's been a few mantras that have sort of, if you like, underpinned what we do and they still to this day are really important. And I think, you know, there's there's one that we've always said, which is just sort of make it work. And, and that, you know, I'm sure many companies have their own version of it, but for us, it was always about make it work for the customer mm. and then looking at it from our own perspective, like let's make it work for us too, which meant we've never really been uh, too fixated on this is the way it has to be, but being able to adjust and flexible so that A, our customer ends up with a good outcome and a good result. And again, I've probably received some feedback from my team over time that this is a little bit silly. It's just one customer. Why are we going to all this effort? Why are we doing this? But to me, they're all test cases for why we do the thing we do. And if we're not sort of driven to go and do something interesting or exciting or different than the norm to make it work for someone, then it's kind of like, well, you know, what's this all about anyway? And I think, you know, the same goes for the team as well. We've gone through stages where we were all working obviously in an office, then we were all remote because of COVID. Then we came back in sort of a hybrid form. Now we're remote again. So there's sort of the ability for us to allow the flexibility to be the driver rather than any one single fixed way of doing things. And so to me, that's been really important. The the other thing that we've, we've sort of said quite a bit, which again, I think it's nice because these things have a meaning for our customers and for us, um, which is, you know, you're the best person and it's, it's sort of applied to our customers in that we think landlords or property owners are the best people to manage their own property mm. and the best people to do it because they care the most about their investment. They care the most about the rent. They care the most about making the, sure the property and the asset is actually going to be maintained and they care about the relationship with, with the sort of tenant who's the customer, right? So we always think that they're the best person, but when we apply that again to ourselves within the team, we basically look at each other and say, well, you can take ownership, you can take responsibility of this because you are the best person to do it. And so 
there's, there's a couple of these things that have always floated around. We, we've never had, and we're certainly not big enough to have like posters around the office with, you know, cool, cool mantras like that. But, but it's very much underpinned what we do and how we operate and the things that we look to achieve. And look, I think probably the other thing that's, that's again, driven us is we, we are doing something different. It's, there isn't an off-the-shelf solution or version of what we do. Mm. It's known that it's a little bit different. And we, we are rewarded on a daily basis, not only by obviously seeing the growth in the business, but the feedback from customers is, you know, we, we, we say this a lot, like we get a lot of love mail from people because they're super happy about what we do and they can see it delivering value back to their lives. Mm. And so that's sort of, that's quite fulfilling in, you know, I delivered a new feature, which I thought was very simple and small, but actually someone really appreciated it and told us. Nice. So, um, yeah, being able to keep that dynamic within the team is really important. Very nice. That's, that's really cool. I, I love that mantra as well. You, you're the right person. Um, can you, well, on the Sprint Heart Iterate Fast podcast, we like to create an opportunity for for a shout out. So I will put you on the spot a little bit. We, we want to shout out anyone on our team, uh, a specific person, um, or it could be a team themselves that played a crucial role in shaping company culture or driving growth. Can you think of anyone who you, you might highlight or recognize and say, this person has made a, a, a really amazing contribution to the business that we're building or the product that we're building or to how we're growing our team? Oh, absolutely. Can I, can I, uh, can I do a few? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I, I'm going to start with uh, Paul Ferret, who's our CTO, who joined us about 18 months ago now. And he had joined from, I guess, a background in startups and scaling pretty large businesses and platforms and has, if you like, brought with him, obviously not just the know-how and the experience and all the rest, but has brought to the team the framework for operating to drive sort of excellence in the way we do things um, and even just his perspective on product and how we design and do things to scale has been a tremendous benefit. And so that, if you like, on the day-to-day, it's sort of nice to be able to bring and add new members to the team who who fit nicely and also drive us to that next level. Mm-hmm. So he he, over the last 18 months, has if you like, had sort of big shoulders and carried a lot and helped us through some, some, some sort of big phases of growth and also some big transitions. We have, uh, I'm going to say, uh, two key developers before that who were sort of the core of our tech team over many years who we will sort of joke uh, in the early days, we used to say we're sort of riding a bicycle but trying to build a rocket ship to the moon. And, and so... Um, just a quick shout out to to Jing and Dinesh who have sort of taken us from a place of of turning our bicycle into the rocket ship that we always dreamed of, um, and so that has certainly been a big part of it. Um, in the last sort of two to three years, we've had um, both uh, Kitty and Jody who have looked after a combination of customer experience, design, and product. And have been able to, if you like, take the way that we operate from a, uh, our customers have always said to us, you offer a truly personal service despite being a tech platform. And they work tirelessly to sort of continue that idea, even though we're becoming a tech platform, if that makes sense. Like you don't, you don't want to end up being sort of anonymous, like a big corporate. You want to continue that personalized service in everything we do. Um, and the, the final shout out I'd give who actually many of our customers would have over the last little while certainly 
spoken to Dan, who's delivered a lot of the sort of customer-facing business development, sales and support type activities, who has, if you like, taken again the sort of early core of the business and the seed of what we stood for and and managed to replicate it and translate it out to customers on a, on a, on a regular basis. So um, that covers the sort of vast majority of our team um, and everyone's got a crucial role to play. So yeah, look, I, I'm very grateful for the people that we get to work with every day. Fantastic. Lots of um, recognition and, and, and shout outs there. So I'm, I'm sure your team will be very happy to hear that. Jeremy, as we close out the show today, I always like to get three pieces of advice that you'd have for anyone who wants to apply and work at Rent Better. This is uh, obviously for people who are interested to work for you, but as well, just thinking about tech founders in general, like what what is it um, that you would give uh, uh anyone seeking to work in your business, what, what three pieces of advice do you have for them? Look, I think there's probably three different, it fits nicely because there's three different attributes that we'd probably test for when we, when we bring people in or when we look to hire. Um, the, the first is, um, I guess, an ability to problem solve. And to me, that is a combination of, of start to finish. Are you able to research? Are you able to structure and articulate what you are trying to think about? Are you able to come up with an approach? Do you see some of the sort of pitfalls or the ways that, you know, things can go wrong and what are you thinking about? And so that sort of, it's a little bit of a, if you like, an old world consulting approach, but the ability to just come up with a hypothesis and test and play Mm -hmm. with and see if it's going to work and I can do it. And that might be someone who's sort of deep into the tech versus someone who's customer facing. I think that skill and that sort of um, ability to operate that way translates across all functions in the business. So, so I would say sort of uh, whether it's a domain that you're specifically looking at or an industry, I think sharpening those skills and the ability to, I guess, be curious and question things a little bit further um, is really important. And, you know, it goes across everything in life. But I think particularly when you're looking at a company, like to be able to really explore what they're doing is, is really critical. The second thing I, I would say is looking at communication skills. And again, whether you're a sort of technology developer who's going to be, you know, head in the screen and just coding all day, or you're someone who's speaking to customers all day, there will always be problems and there will always be solutions and there will always be sort of interaction between the team. So the ability to communicate and express yourself becomes, I think, a really important skill in life. Um, so we, we want to find people who, you know, even if English is your third language, are able to express yourself or communicate what's going on such that we can work together and find that right solution together. And the third one, we, we used to, uh, I guess, back when I was a consultant, there was always an interview thing that, that you'd come up with a sort of Tasmania test, which was if I was stuck in Tasmania's airport or in a Tasmanian airport for a weekend uh, with this person, would, would it be all right or would we not, not be happy and never speak to each other at the end of the weekend? Um, and I think there's a bit of that, right? We, we've, we've culturally as a business and we've all worked together um, in the same location, for example, like sitting down to team lunches every day has been a big part of how we've operated. And I think you want to be able to work with people who have genuine interests outside of work, who are able to express, you know, an individual perspective and their own view of the world and have their own experiences to bring to bear. So I think, um, you know, people who can be themselves and who can sort of share that side of themselves in a work environment are, you know, the people who we want to work with. You want to work with great people. Awesome stuff. 
great advice uh, for anyone looking to to get into tech, to uh, interested in, in rent better as well. Uh, such really good advice that we can take away. Jeremy, I want to thank you for joining us on the Sprint Hard Iterate Fast podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, learning about your business, and we wish you all the uh, best of luck and success in the future. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Perfect. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sprint Hard Iterate Fast podcast. You can find this episode's show notes and additional resources on www.beakerandflint.com. As a bonus, for the first 100 people to subscribe and leave a review, I'm giving away copies of my new book, Scale Up Culture. Scale Up Culture will give you a leg up in your career by showing you how fast-growing tech companies are building their teams. Stay tuned for more episodes on Melbourne's Tech Mavericks, 10 companies shaking up their industries in 2023.